Hello, and welcome back to the White Noise Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, my name is Dr. Mohan Dutt, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Dr. John Barkham and Dr. Alok Sachdeva. For first-time listeners, we are a sleep medicine-focused podcast that uses expert interviews to dive into the complex aspects of various sleep medicine topics. We're a free form and generally unscripted, and therefore I would like to take this time to say that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the views of the University of Michigan or the Veterans Administration. In addition, we do not provide medical advice. If you are in need of immediate medical assistance, please contact your personal physician or call 911. I would again like to thank you for listening. We hope this podcast not only entertains, but teaches you something new. Hello, today uh, joining us is Dr. Joseph Andrew, also known as Andy Brakowski. He's a sleep neurologist at Relax Health, a direct specialty care sleep medicine clinic dedicated to the treatment of complex sleep disorders, including restless leg syndrome. Dr. Brakowski received his sleep medicine training at Stanford before spending more than six years in academic practice at the University of Michigan and Cleveland Clinic before starting his own telemedicine clinic at Relax Health in 2022. He currently treats patients in and around Michigan, Ohio, and Florida. Dr. Burkowski is a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the International Restless Leg Syndrome Study Group, and volunteers on the Scientific and Medical Advisory Board of the RLS Foundation. Since 2019, his most prominent work has been for the AASM's Clinical Practice Guideline Task Force for the treatment of restless leg syndrome to be published at the end of 2023 as its first new guidelines in RLS in more than 11 years. You can reach Dr. Burkowski by going to Relax Health website by typing sleeprls.com. In addition to a monthly sleep blog, he also has been busy producing weekly educational videos on restless leg syndrome and sleep on his YouTube channel at Andy Burkowski, MD. You can also follow Relax Health on Facebook. Hello, and welcome back to the White Noise Podcast. I'm Dr. Mohan Dutt. Joining me is Dr. John Barkham, and today's guest, our first repeat uh, our first repeat guest, Dr. Andy Burkowski. Offender. Andy, aff- offender. I was going to say offender, yes. but then I was like, <laughs> I don't know if that's nice or anything. So I, I that's why I paused and I, I double spoke. So welcome, Andy. Thanks and my, my clinic welcome location back. is now closer than yours to this recording studio oh, nice. just, yeah. and we can talk about that later. <laughs> so welcome back. Um, excited to have you here to talk um, about kind of restless legs part, part do yeah. um, and just kind of what's, what's changed in the field since, cause it's been two years, I think since we had you on pre COVID. Yeah. So. Pre COVID. So three. yeah, three years. Yeah. You were, it's like turn flies. of the century COVID. Those are all, you know, landmarks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's been a while. Things have changed. There They've been some updates to to some of the guidelines uh, or a new guideline release. So I'm sure we're going to get to talking about that. Um, but, you know, as always for our listeners, uh, we're just going to do a little get to know you with uh, with Dr. Burkowski. Uh, we're going to keep it a little bit shorter this time because it's not his first time here. So, Andy, what's your uh, what's your what's kind of your thing of the month? What are you what are you into? Well, uh, I don't have much time to read a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts like yours, but uh you know, I've been reading a lot because I've just started a, my own practice, so a lot of small business stuff. So I'm sure your your audience is not dying to hear about 
the uh, How to Submit Business Taxes and Deductions book that I'm currently Ooh. reading. But let me talk about <laughs> the newest sensation, which are uh, these uh, graphic novels. Have you are, are your kids uh, into these things? But yeah, it's basically like, like what a cross between a comic book and, mm-hmm. a, and, a, and a book. Which one are you? What are you kind of reading right now? So the, the new one is the investigators. Uh-huh. These are two sort of FBI agent alligators or crocodiles or whatever they are, <laughs> uh, depending on the snout shape. But the, the uh, John Patrick Green is the author. So I've been reading it primarily my, my eight-year-old son, and they are incredibly hilarious. They've got these depths of character stuff that the kids don't pick up on. Mm-hmm. But the puns, I love the puns. Oh. <laughs> it's just pun city. It's it's so bad, but it's it's just so enjoyable. And I, I've you know I think they're coming out with the se- seventh book this year. I've already like pre ordered it. Does your son get so, the puns as well? He, he yeah. gets about half of them, and he he laughs hysterically. Probably not a great bedtime <laughs> book for you know cognitive hyperarousal type stuff. But but he uh, he loves it. And we're we're like reading through the seven books, uh, you know, all the way through again. Yeah, well, they so, can't. I, I started in comic books. I I wouldn't read anything else. And then I kind of got in, I did read graphic novels briefly and then science fiction. Or yeah. I did a lot of comic books when I was a kid too. And I mean, um, Watchmen, you know, as a, as a graphic novel is like one of my, it's still one of my favorite books. And then I don't know if you've ever read mouse, um, which is kind of like a, well, it's very sad. It's about like, uh, a Holocaust, uh, graphic novel where like the mice are being persecuted by like cats. Hmm. And it's like, so it's kind of telling a story and, but it's by Art yeah. Spiegelman and he's kind of big into oh, yeah. in the graphic novel world. So, um, yeah. Are they, I mean, the genre itself has lots of stuff they cover. I mean, you know, anything from anime to, I don't know that, and that's not anime. So yeah. Manga. The manga, manga. Right. Yep, that's manga. the word for it. So yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a huge, 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 uh, kind of breadth of, of topics you can get into with that. Um, John, what's your, what's your kind of thing? Uh, skiing. My wife says loves skiing. And then, um, I've been reading 48 laws of power. Uh, someone recommended this and it's about, uh, all the ways that people try to achieve power, some good, some bad, and then how to, you know, and then it's, it's filled with little examples. So it doesn't just drone on about, you know, statistics and stuff. So historical examples and stuff. And so I find it pretty cool. It's interesting. So like, it's okay. So nonfiction. No, yeah, definitely nonfiction. Definitely and my my thing of the month, uh, or is is The Last of Us. I don't know if you guys have heard of this new show. It's on HBO. Um, it's based off of one of my favorite video games of all time, which is called The Last of Us, and it's about um, kind of about the zombie apocalypse. And then they made uh, it into a, a you know prestige TV show, and it's kind of about three episodes in, and it's it's phenomenal. Um, they've done a really good job, and I played the game through like two or three times. So for me, it's like this is like this is awesome. So, so it's a spinoff of a video game. It's not a spin. They've like remade the video game as a TV show, mm-hmm. and so I wouldn't say like it's spinoff, but it's kind of like um, a reimagining of the game as a TV show. So it's it's really really good. Just when you think the zombie apocalypse movies are done. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You I know, thought I thought that was thought it was over. It was vampires, then it was zombies, and now I don't know what's going to be the next thing. But yeah, no, it's definitely worth checking out. And um, the book I'm reading uh, is called uh, Cloud Cuckoo Land. Um, it's by Anthony Doerr, who wrote um, All the Light We Cannot See, um, which is when I think when the Pulitzer or it was a couple years ago. 
but it's really good. It's kind of like a, uh, follows like five different people in different points in time and then how their lives are actually interconnected. Um, so it's, it's really interesting and it's, it's definitely a good read and I'm almost done with it. So I'm looking forward to looking forward to finishing it. Um, so let's, uh, should we get on with the, let's do with it. the interview portion of the show? So I think the first thing, uh, Andy, that we wanted to talk to you about was kind of, uh, your, well, actually just to, quick recap of uh, if you haven't listened to the previous episode kind of what things we talked about were um you know dopamine agonists and how i think andy especially but john and i also don't really uh agree with their their prescription for the management of restless leg syndrome um iron supplementation uh and when to check iron what levels to uh supplement to you know at what level do you supplement at what time would IV iron be better than oral iron. Uh, and then we also discussed some of the oral iron formulations. And then I think the last thing that major thing that we talked about was opiates uh, and kind of a, a brief, a brief rundown of what opiates can be used and um, a little bit about, you know, methadone uh, and, and suboxone or, or buprenorphine. Um, and I think we're definitely going to kind of pick up from there and talk a lot about opiates again today, but kind of, as I alluded to at the beginning, um, some newer guidelines came out, uh, in the Mayo Clinic proceedings, uh, in 2022, um, was it 22, 21, 21, sorry, 21. Um, so kind of after, after we had a, a discussion. And so I just kind of want to get your thoughts on what you thought about kind of what they, what they, uh, what they showed and agree or disagree with anything that, that they, that they talk about in the, in the proceedings. Yeah. So this was a kind of an expert uh, opinion panel of restless leg specialists with the restless leg syndrome foundation. And I'm a unpaid member of the scientific and, and uh, medical advisory board of the foundation. I did not write this article. I, I did review it before it was submitted, did not agree with uh, some of it. It is in the right direction. Uh, the major organizations, including RLS foundation and, International Restless Leg Syndrome Study Group and European Restless Leg Syndrome Study Group all put out a notice in 2016 that just was the red alert. You know, we should be watching out for the effects of these dopamine agonists. They cause augmentation. This was the next step in that, but I, I don't think the step went far enough. And I'm a little bit concerned that there's some nostalgia going on for these drugs. Uh, let's keep in mind that these were new kids on the block. There are no new drugs for restless legs. There really haven't been. These are the only ones, with the exception of gabapentin and acarbil, Horizont. There's really nothing new that's that's coming out for restless legs. But these drugs were heavily funded. A lot of research, a lot of careers were built on these drugs. It's a huge paradigm shift. And I'm coming from a generation where we didn't grow up with these drugs. We grew up with the effects of the drugs uh, so I'm not beholden to these drugs. I, I don't have nostalgia for them. I was not uh, funded by these companies. And I, I just wonder if that's some of the delay here in calling out these drugs for what, you know, what they are. And a lot of experts now think the majority of patients will inevitably develop restless legs, augmentation, worsening of the condition. But worse than worsening is a chemical dependence on the drug so basically, you're damned if you take them, you're damned if you don't, mm -hmm. because you're going to go through drug withdrawal if you go off of them. So it's not as uh, simple as flipping the switch. And, and that's why these patients with augmentation often require weeks or months 
to get off their drug. It's it's like any type of drug dependence. It's right up there with benzodiazepines and, and opioid dependence. It's potentially worse. It's, it may be even a faster uh, you know, recovery from opioids than from dopamine agonists. And so I do agree it's a step in the new direction. Hey, let's look at iron. Let's look at behavioral measures. Uh, let's look at alpha-2 delta ligands, which is your, your gabapentins, your pregabalins. But putting dopamine agonists down there as second line, quote unquote, second line, I would not agree with. And from my experience, you know, I've gone my whole career without prescribing these drugs. So either I'm a really bad doctor uh, or, you know, treating several hundred patients with these conditions and never needing to use these drugs. A little bit too black and white, maybe, but I don't really see a reason to use them because we have we have options and the options are, are better. And and we'll get into this, I'm sure. But if you're giving a dopamine agonist to avoid opioids, all you've done is kicked the can down the road by 10 years committing them to opioids at a higher dose and going through a miserable process to get down 10 years. So maybe they'll invent something in 10 years, but you can't look at patients as we're going to fix them for this year. This is a potentially lifelong condition. You cannot use a treatment that's going to screw things up in 10 years now, unless they're terminally ill. So you guys internists, I'm not going to give you, you know, hydrochlorothiazide if you're going to have hypertensive emergency in 10 years. You know, we're, we're not going to do that right. uh, just to fix the blood pressure this year. So that's my philosophy. It's based on a philosophical argument of uh, I'm looking at the present and the future. And the future with dopamine agonists is, is just not there. I mean, there are very, very limited roles for it. And I, I just don't see why they need to be used at all. And, and with these impulse control disorders that come hand in hand, uh, patients gambling away their life savings. Uh, Multiple patients I've had this year develop alcoholism in their 80s. Wow. So they were they were okay with alcohol for their first 60 years, and now they're going to develop alcoholism in their 80s because they're on a dopamine agonist. That doesn't make make sense. It changes behaviors. It, it really there there's really really be cautious about uh, the use of these drugs. So I'm just kind of doubling <laughs> doubling yeah. down on the previous conversation we had three to four years ago. So uh, in your, this. I mean, you would say iron. Alpha two delta ligand, and then opiate. Um, that would be my my progression, and that's that's worked in my practice. Obviously, there are these behavioral measures that many patients have already taken by the time they come to a sleep physician. So you assume you know they've switched to bupropion from sertraline if they're on an SSRI. You know things like that. Better sleep hygiene, addressing insomnia, treating sleep apnea. Uh, indirect measures. But once they get to a medical doctor, they probably had tried some of those things. But I think if I saw enough patients off the street, which is pretty rare, most of them are fixed with iron, either in a short-term period or long-term period, that you don't even need to talk about medications in most circumstances. So that's the issue is that we're only talking about medications because we've made the condition worse artificially. Most of these patients, had they just gotten an iron level checked? I mean, there right. are doctors that are prescribing drugs before they even check the iron level. And, and we're talking people with intractable conditions who have had severe symptoms for 10 years, and I'm checking their iron level after they've been treated for 10 or 15 years for the first time, and they don't even know they're iron deficient. That's shocking to me. And, and, and I think this gets the message out, at least in those areas, uh, the, the, the triggers and then the iron being so important before we even talk about a, a drug. 
One one thing, this is a little bit of an aside, but I definitely wanted to ask you this because I get a lot of this in my clinic and John, I'm not sure if you do. And, and Andy, you might see this a lot too, is um, Parkinson's patients. They're come to me from neurology on, you know, a lot of like cinnamon or levodopa, carbidopa, and then they get referred to to me for restless legs. How do you kind of, man? you know, they're on a dopamine agonist. You're not going to take them off of that dopamine agonist because it's controlling their, their Parkinson's. Um, like, well, how do you, how do you manage both conditions? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. I don't think we've really answered why, why is the prevalence of restless leg syndrome higher than in the general population in, in those with idiopathic Parkinson disease. And the theory is that the, uh, well, one of the theories is that in this condition where you have a dopamine deficiency, which is Parkinson disease, and in restless leg syndrome, you actually have actually too much dopamine because the dopamine receptors have some uh, defect, like defective characteristics. But theoretically, it's actually, maybe it's the treatment for Parkinson's that augments the restless legs. And that's why people develop restless leg syndrome. And one of my most severe cases uh, that I've seen over this past year was a gentleman who was a Parkinson's suspect. He was put on levodopa, severe augmentation in six months. You typically do not see that in Parkinson's disease. The augmentation does not happen that quickly with levodopa because you're just replacing the missing gotcha. levodopa. But the, based on my experience, so this is my own opinion, and I, I'm sure there's other experts who might have different opinions. This is an area of exploration probably, but it's actually the dopamine agonists that tend to cause more augmentation in Parkinson's disease than the levodopa itself. Right. That's been my experience. And I, again, I'm not a movement disorder specialist. Parkinson treatment has become very specialized, but I think they've moved away from these dopamine agonists in Parkinson's disease because levodopa has been found to have more of a, a, almost a neuroprotective effect. It actually may slow the progression of Parkinson's disease. So I think the clinicians are quick to start patients on levodopa if they have mm -hmm. just the typical idiopathic, like, you know, per, you know, first line Parkinson's disease. And so you're not seeing the dopamine agonists as much as you did say five to 10 years ago. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting thing, but I, I don't really know why, okay. you know, directionally the prevalence might be 30, 25, 30%, whereas in the general population, it might be five to 10% with restless legs. So that's a good question. So then you work your way around it. And again, it's actually getting them off dopamine agonists because most Parkinson's movement disorder specialists will say, we, we don't really need them on that. We're sort of on that for restless legs. Gotcha. We could do with just levodopa and these you know, other, I won't get into all the, the drugs, the Comtans and, and, mm -hmm. and these drugs that can quote unquote augment the, uh, no pun intended, the levodopa. I, I think you, you treat them the same way. You, you can go through systematically address iron, you know, throw on a gabapentin, a pregabalin and, and work from there. But that is a tricky case because you're not going to pull them off levodopa. Right. But from my experience, it's not it's usually not the usually, levodopa that's because you're sort of replacing what was there. I think what's happening is the dopamine receptor system is becoming dysfunctional from the dopamine agonists themselves, not necessarily the levodopa. Um, and it also proved to me that this guy didn't have Parkinson's disease because he augmented so fast. And he didn't. He he uh, he ended up not having it. It was it was later seen by an expert and they said there's no way he has Parkinson's disease. So he he just augmented because he was on levodopa. So he's lucky he got to see you. Well, yeah, I, I mean, he had other specialists too who, who didn't think he had Parkinson's disease, but that, that was sort of a, I've seen that before with mm -hmm. levodopa where in non-Parkinson patients, that's the fastest way to augment usually within months. 
And, and then if they have Parkinson's, they may not augment uh, for many years or, or at all, potentially. So uh, it, it all depends. That's where your neurology background, I would never have caught that. Never. Yeah, it, it, that does help. It does help because then you could also look at other symptoms and like, hey, does this make sense for, for Parkinson's? So you can look, same with REM sleep behavior disorder is is like it gives you these added things you can look for as a neurologist, but it, it's stuff that any any doctor can pick up on. So should we, so, okay. So I think we've established, and I don't know, John, I mean, I think you're, you're in the same boat here. You don't, I've never seen, I mean, I've seen, you don't do dopamine agonists either anymore. No, oh, never. I mean, I, I had the continuum a few times, but I've, I don't know if I've ever started one. Yeah, I don't. Because all I got were problem patients that came back to me because we were a consult service. So obviously at the VA, the, the primaries already tried to treat it and we would get yeah. what couldn't get treated or got problematic. And we were often just undoing what was done and going back through like the iron situation. Of course, you know, the recommendations for the ferritin levels changed three times, it seems like over the last decade. But, you know, um, so that might have confused some people. But, um, you know, so, it did happen quite often. Let's, let's do a, a rough, a rough Dr. Andy Burkowski algorithm for, so de novo patient comes in to see you symptoms of restless leg. You check up, check an iron at what levels are you just to, just kind of to, to touch back to what we previously did in case people didn't listen. So someone comes in to see you, you know, not previously diagnosed with restless leg completely off the street. You check an iron. It's at what levels are you doing? What level are you treating? And what ferritin are you treating to? And when would you do oral versus IV? So, yeah, this is an area of, again, investigation controversy. The reason the levels keep changing is because there's almost not a, there's really not a good correlation between brain iron levels or even specific areas of the brain being deficient and your serum iron levels. The one thing you can almost say though, is if the serum's low, the brain's really low, mm -hmm. but the condition is thought to be due to either poor iron metabolism or low iron levels in the brain. So that's almost more essential to it than the dopamine. Dopamine actually might be a side, you know, show that because iron might be involved in dopamine transport and maybe the dopamine agonists were almost a coincidence and not really the mainstay of, of the, of the pathophysiology. So that's why the, these numbers are, are kind of a fudge, but the serum levels are helpful for oral iron absorption. And the way I see it, again, it can be debated here or there, but generally a ferritin of 75, like a true ferritin of 75, not an acute phase reactant ferritin, but that seems to be a cutoff of oral supplementation. It's very hard to supplement somebody who's already at 75. You can use a very low dose of iron, uh, maybe like 15 to 25 milligrams of elemental iron per day, or maybe double every other day. Uh, but it's going to be hard to get that level up very high once you're at 75. But the RLS brain might be better at 200. Well, unless you have hemochromatosis, you're never going to get that ferritin level up to 200 without doing IV iron. So to make it simple, I would say 75 or below, you start oral supplementation, 75 to 150, consider IV iron infusion. So you, okay. So I think this is really important um, because I think the general consensus is, and maybe I'm wrong with the general, but I, in my, I, I think the general consensus is once the iron's above 75, 
the fair sorry once the ferritin is above 75 if they continue to have symptoms of restless leg then you start medication not you continue to supplement iron to bring the ferritin up higher uh, would you agree john i think that's it's it's changed oh i'm not saying you're wrong yeah. i'm saying like every time i read a new guideline it's like well, i guess i didn't go high enough on the yeah. iron <laughs> well, i feel like that's what people I, th- I feel like that's what the majority of people do is that 75 you know less than 75 okay we'll do iron get it up to 75 if it's not better at 75 or higher then we do IV. Well, no, then we start medic like gabapentin. Yeah, and I would disagree with that. Okay. The reason I would is because there's almost no downside to the iron except financial and convenience. Mm. Because these iron infusions, despite all of the myth uh, about them, and I've, I've done videos and, and, yep. uh, and blogs about this, is that these are among the safest treatments we have. The issue is they're not covered by insurance. It's hard to find ins- infusion centers to get this done where they're willing to do it. It's not financially feasible to infusion centers, so a lot of them don't even do iron because it, it's a money loser. So it's not a, a preferred treatment for a lot of people. You guys have the privilege of being at the VA where you can do a lot of things. There are a lot of restrictions, but there's a lot of things you could do on your judgment. And I don't recall being at the VA and having cutoffs for iron levels. And and you can just do it no, based on your clinical yeah, judgment. Right. I used to do it all the time at the VA when I was there back in the day. And and there's no medical downside. They're not going to have iron excess unless they have hemochromatosis, which you would already know because you're checking their iron levels. You're not doing it blindly. They get up high. It does nothing for them. You let it drop back down to normal after several months and you never do the infusion again unless they're low. But it doesn't hurt to try an infusion and it's hit or miss. I, it's not going to okay. be 100%. But are you pushing? So you said one, uh, under 150, you'd infuse you know, try to get up there and see how they do. That's really yeah. Again, you have to factor in the other iron <clears throat> tests. So that if the transferrin saturation or the iron divided by the TIBC is low and the ferritin's higher, then it's irrelevant what the ferritin is. So the right. the lower number of the two is more specific towards iron deficiency. The ferritin is usually the most specific, but that sometimes can be yeah, yeah. elevated. So assuming the transferrin saturation is above twenty percent, I would go up to a ferritin of up to one fifty to do an infusion. Before I would start a medication, not not to say that I haven't started medication because of the practical difficulties of getting it. If you can only get, uh, you know, some form of infusion that might be $2,000, there's no price transparency. Nobody knows how much it's going to cost. It's not going to be covered by insurance because you're not anemic. How do you get it approved? Right. They don't even recognize iron labs for restless leg syndrome currently for a lot of insurers, much less treatment with iron. They'll say, oh, this isn't even recognized in our, you know, algorithm. Mm. It doesn't say anything about iron deficiency here. It's like, well, it's for restless leg syndrome. It doesn't exist. It may take 10 years for that to be covered by insurance. We'll pay for the requip though, right? The, yeah, they'll pay for it. Exactly. And you have to probably fail requip to get any of these other drugs anyway. Right, right. Based on these algorithms that these insurance companies have. But, but in terms of if you're going pure like VA style where you don't have to work with the insurance... I would still do an infusion all the way up to 150 because what's the downside? They're not going to ever have a serious reaction to the infusion. They could have a minor reaction, which might go away right after the infusion. But serious reactions are are just don't exist with iron. And a high iron level is not dangerous in and of itself. It just, you use up the iron, you go back down to your baseline eventually. That's, you use it up, you build your red blood cells with the iron and it's gone in, in six to 12 months. No harm, no foul. That's a good point. No, I, I'm usually, I've typically been waiting until they fail oral therapy, you know, because I was like, oh, I tried, you know, that way if anyone looks at it, they're like, well, you didn't even try oral. 
but um, it makes sense. You're not you're not wrong. No, I haven't we, had anyone we, walk away from an infusion that didn't feel better. That's what. Yeah, that's, that's true. I don't think. Yeah, even if it didn't completely resolve their symptoms, there was sim- there was some symptomatic improval for everyone who's gotten it. I think you had mentioned you talked about hepcidin last time, right? As yes, a bodyguard to a nightclub. Of, yeah, of that's it. That's and, right? I still and use so that's that analogy. at seventy five, right? The the more kind of the higher the the iron gets, it's harder to do. Yeah, it, I mean it, it's going to vary from person to person. So you you theoretically, if you did a low dose, you could maybe get the seventy five up above one hundred. So we when we do supplement, we want to target above one hundred. Mm-hmm. It's controversial, like what level is should be a cutoff for the infusion. They haven't done rigorous studies of people above a hundred. But it's thought that there could be a benefit because it doesn't correlate with, with the brain. The you could have a ferritin of 150 and low brain levels. So the question is, how does it penetrate? Where does the iron go? Why is it not always effective? Who Who is going to respond to it? We'll maybe know those. There's certain phenotypes, uh, maybe based on genetics, for example. Someday we'll know who we could, we should give, uh, to whom we should give an infusion. But yeah, the, the hepcidin, and, th- and that gets into the alternate day dosing versus daily dosing at a low dose. Probably never good to take iron multiple times a day because right. that hepcidin, I think the pathway is like two hours hepcidin will kick in and then maybe it'll be there for 24 hours. So this one study I was just looking at this week, they from maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the second dose of iron, like if you took it morning and night, the second dose was like almost not absorbed at all. So there was almost no benefit to the twice daily causing more constipation, mm-hmm. GI upset than just taking it once a day. And so, so that's the hepcidin. And, and so a lot of particularly internal medicine doctors are doing every other day for anemia, mm-hmm. like just a high dose, uh, maybe, you know, 50, 65 milligrams every other day. It's hard for patients to remember to take things every other day. But so I tend to do like lower doses. So if we're going to go with numbers again, true ferritin less than 50, I do the kind of the full dose, 50 to 65 milligrams of elemental iron. If it's 50 to 75, I do like 15 to 25 milligrams of elemental iron. And then, you know, which type of iron, you know, we don't need to get into that now, but that's just a general sense. And then you have feedback. You've got the blood tests. So you do that for two to three months, take them off the supplement for two days, get a morning fasting iron level. And now you got your answer. Did it do anything? Did it, did it actually go down? Did it make no difference? And then you've got symptoms. Did, did it improve the symptoms? So that's what I would do before I'd ever start a medication is, is do the oral supplementation if below 75 and I, I would strongly consider an IV because gabapentin, as benign as it is, respiratory depression, mm-hmm. theoretically, dizziness, you could fall over at night, you could be drowsy in the yep. morning. There are risks. And I think those risks are even higher than just an iron infusion. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very safe, but I have had, I think I had a urinary retention one time, you know, and I was like, oh man. I've never seen this before. I've been using gabapentin for like 10 yeah, years. Yeah. And the patient, you know, she called but, me and she's like, I've been having urine. I was like, okay, just stop the gabapentin. Well, I feel like everybody else. used to be on gabapentin. I, I mean, mean, it was like, well, that's because we're, we're, we're internists. So, yeah. I mean, we were, we're treating diabetes a lot. So, yeah. Well, the other thing is that in the state of Michigan, gabapentin is now schedule five. Mm-hmm. Other states like Ohio, um, some other, the surrounding states are, it's a monitor drug now because you can use it to potentiate opioid mm-hmm. uh, effects. So it's now even harder to prescribe right. gabapentin. Right. You have to check the, the database and yep. everything and it's a controlled substance. So it's more of a, ha- like everything for restless legs is now a, a hassle. Right. Whether it's iron infusion or gabapentin or God forbid opioids, it's a hassle. Yeah, there's extra clinical time dedicated to writing that prescription every month that never gets accounted for. So let's let's move on. Um, 
in the sake of time because we so iron's been infused patient's still symptomatic let's jump to medicine and then after that let's jump to opioids so what what medications are you using um are you do you have a preference between gabapentin lyrica or or gabapentin and a carbol which is impossible to get again so the only fda approved drug that i would actually use is gabapentin and a carbol gabapentin uh itself and pregabalin predate that drug so they were never going to be fda approved no, there's going to be no indication for restless legs but those are all thought to be relatively equal the reason i start with gabapentin is just practicality because it's the cheapest drug and it it tends to work really well We'll see what the new guidelines, the ASM guidelines say by the end of this year. But uh, gabapentin, uh, in my view, gabapentin, gabapentin anacarbil and pregabalin are all first line. So I use gabapentin first. If there's really no response, I switch to pregabalin. The absorption might be a bit different and better. It tends to be maybe slightly more expensive, but not, not that unaffordable, usually covered by insurance. Gabapentin and a carbol is hard to get approved by insurance. It's it's hard for patients to pay out of pocket. It's a very expensive drug right now. And the reason I would use that is because the absorption of that drug is, is pretty superior to regular gabapentin. So if they get a partial benefit from gabapentin and you're sort of hitting 600 with a couple doses of 600, the only way to get up that gabapentin to a higher level is to really give uh, gabapentin and a car bill. And so that's where I'd go to that and hope I can get it covered or argue to the insurance to get it covered. But that's very few patients I've had. Uh, oddly, it's it's an FDA approved drug. I've had only a handful of patients in my career on that drug, even though that's that could be the first line drug, yeah, really. I, have, I was able to get one person on it and I have them on it right now and they are doing well with, but I had, they had to have failed everything else. And including <laughs> including dopamine agonist, which no, that was done by primary care. Yeah, and that's so. a cost thing. So, yeah. you know, I'm not going to get into the battle between pharmacy <laughs> and insurance, but we, really, uh, you know, in 10 years when it's some generic <laughs> and, and a carbyl drug, yeah. I think it'll be, a, I'd probably start that one first, actually. Okay. Any uh, questions on that, John? No, I mean, when that, I guess we're going on, like, you know, the arms race here. Yeah. Uh, you know, the gab pendant fails. All right. Where are we going Where after we that? Going? So once the By the way, let me back up. So there are some recommendations for clonazepam too. Right. So in general, you have to think of five pathways that all affect restless leg syndrome. So one pathway is the kind of the calcium channel seizure pathway. Mm -hmm. That's your alpha two delta drugs like gabapentin. Uh, then you have your opioid system. You have your dopamine system. You have the adenosinergic system, which is diperidomal. Oh which God. we maybe don't have time to talk about today. And then we've got the benzodiazepine, <laughs> the hyperarousal, um, you know, the kind of the GABAergic system. It, it, it's really the the reason I, I'm not in favor of benzodiazepines, they've kind of fallen out of favor is because they're um, controlled substances. They cause chemical dependence. They cause sedation. They cause cognitive impairment. So basically all the things you're trying to avoid with opioids, but no proven track record of actually working for restless legs, unlike opioids. So if you're going to skip opioids, you're not really doing yourself favors by knocking, turning people into zombies with clonazepam. And, and, and from my survey of patients who I've picked up who have been on these drugs, only a fraction of them say it actually helps the restless legs. Most are saying, oh, it, it knocks me out and puts me to sleep. Into so, the next day, and, and most of the time. In classic studies, it actually decreases arousals associated with periodic limb movements. It doesn't actually affect the periodic limb movements. So theoretically, if you correlate limb movements with restless legs, which is a dubious 
uh, you know, connection. It's not really working on that pathway. It's working on the arousal pathway. It's a sedative basically. And I'm not sure it directly affects people's symptoms. So I don't typically use it and it causes pretty strong dependence. It takes people months and months to get off of those drugs. Yeah. I would, I mean, I've avoided it as well uh, because a lot of people at daytime sedation, you know, it's like, well, there you go. I mean, the half-life's like what, 30 hours, you know? Yeah. It could be for clonazepam, 24 to 48 hours. You're just building up. Even if you're taking 0.25 a day, you're, you're a zombie by the end of the week, potentially. Um, so it is a treatment option. I would say it's down. It's, I would probably actually use it before I would use a dopamine agonist. Though, but <laughs> I generally don't need to get that far because you, you don't need to get past opioids to have efficacy. So, um, so let's, let's talk opioids. Cause I think that's where all right. this is all funneling in that direction. So our irons failed, our, our alpha two Delta ligand has failed. Now we're at, now we're at our can I mention opioids. one thing though? Okay. Some of the guidelines though in this paper, you know, this 2021 were like recommending that's that, you know, even Lunesta and stuff to like, you know, that sedative approach that we, you know, were taught a decade ago. Well, you can just sedate them through it, you know, and hey, the patient's falling asleep, they're happy, they're not having insomnia. But again, your experience, my experience, your experience has been they come with a whole set of uh, other problems when you do that and it doesn't fix it. They end up back in your clinic eventually. Yeah. The, the, the thing with this progression that you're mentioning is generally the progression of somebody who's already been exposed to dopamine agonists. That's mm-hmm. the problem is that most people don't get to the point of needing opioids okay. unless they're already have yeah, had yeah, exposure yeah. or augmentation. And there are even studies showing that even without augmentation, the doses of gabapentin and pregabalin required to control symptoms is higher after you've been on a dopamine agonist, even if you didn't have augmentation. So there's some like negative effect that's permanent when it comes to these dopamine agonists. But if somebody's never been exposed to a dopamine agonist, it's pretty rare that you need to go to a second line drug because it's usually going to be iron or a little bit of gabapentin. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's very few patients I've seen who who have not, unless it's like a tolerance issue and they can't tolerate any of these drugs because they cause dizziness. Th- then you're talking like, do you do an opioid? Do you do something else? And then those are things to explore, but uh, generally for moderate to severe restless legs, you're going to look to an opioid as the next line. And this is not my, not just my opinion, but, but I think the agreement of many restless leg specialists that you're looking at an opioid, the way you would gauge this is the, the opioid risk tool is something I recommend everyone doing. Uh, There's, there's different ones out there, but there's some that are scored for men and women separately. And it's basically personal and family history risk factors that potentiate the risk of uh, abuse or addiction to opioids. So you can go into it thinking, wow, this is a really high risk person. Maybe I should try diperidamol or this is a low to medium risk or low risk. Go, go forth and, and use the opioid. So that can help gauge for you and the patient. Usually it's the patient is more apprehensive than you are as the clinician. And so that's, uh, this is a, a tool that you can use to help gauge a risk. It wouldn't stop me from using the drug, uh, but uh, what we're going to talk about is there's a there's almost a way out of this situation, and that's buprenorphine. So should we? Yeah, let's do it. Let's so, do it. So you do you typically run through you know when you're getting there you run them through the C risk calculator just to kind of every patient. Through. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and I, I and, and if they're high risk, I still prescribe the opioid, <laughs> but I monitor them more carefully. So I've put people who have been on opioid have abused opioids and I've been able to put them back on an opioid. Now, again, the patient population, again, you're talking a lot of patients are elderly. 
you know, they're much lower risk than like, let's say they abused something 40, 50 years ago. They're much lower risk because the opioid risk tool, the gauge cutoff is like 45, but there's a difference between a, you know, a 25 year old and a 75 year old in terms of who's going to start abusing something, not out of the realm of possibility, but, but a lot less risk in this population. This is not a drug seeking population by and large. So you're not going to feign restless legs to get opioids. There's much easier ways to do that. Uh, so this is not a drug seeking group. Usually I'm trying to convince them to take an opioid um, because otherwise they're just suffering and there's very little we can do um, in terms of medication treatments. So what's your, I mean, do you just jump straight to buprenorphine at this point or do you? Um, almost always. Okay. The one exception would be those over the age of 80, some of the frail patients, maybe some of the more elderly patients where you don't even want to touch a long acting agent. The, the, the beauty and the harm of methadone and buprenorphine are that they're long acting. So they don't cause this sharp spike in effect. It's, it's a very slow, steady kind of 24 seven gradual onset, gradual offset of the drug. So that's why, you know, methadone has been probably the most commonly prescribed drug. I don't know if that's statistically true, but it seems like it would be for the last 30 years in terms of opioids. But buprenorphine works a lot like methadone, but has even better features. So it's sort of like methadone, but like a designer methadone that's even better than methadone. And, and the, the areas that everyone's going to appreciate is number one, the partial agonist effect of buprenorphine. There really should not be respiratory depression. You overdose on oxycodone, you're dead. You overdose on buprenorphine, you're tired. That's a big difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the difference between life and death. That's why this drug is used for opioid use disorder now, because you would rather overdose on buprenorphine than fentanyl, and it's going to save lives. Mm -hmm. So why not take it to your advantage? Because then your question is, does it work? And if I told you it does work just as well as all the other opioids, then then that's not that's not a concern. And and hopefully we'll be publishing on that this year. Um, I'll be putting out uh, something with my my colleagues at the Cleveland Clinic. Hopefully we'll have a publication by the end of the year on real world experience with buprenorphine. As it stands, there's only a small abstract by uh, David Rye's group out of Emory on this, but his his results are going to be relatively similar to my my results with a much larger patient group on this drug. So if the efficacy is there, it's long acting, it doesn't cause much euphoria, there's no high, so there's less likely for addiction or addictive behavior, and then the side effects are reduced. And the DEA agrees because the DEA has made it schedule three. We can give you a 90-day supply. We can give you two refills on that. So then you don't have to keep looking up the pharmacy database right. every th- right. 30 days. That's, I mean, it, to me, it's, it's, it's my go-to opioid. I'm not prescribing this over iron infusion, over gabapentin, but if you had to pick an opioid, to me, this is the lowest risk. And patients, uh, not patients, but, but providers and physicians in the pain community, the addiction community, they see the benefits of, of this drug. It causes less dependency even. They find that people need even a lower dose over time potentially uh, for, for other conditions like opioid use disorder or for chronic pain, uh, switching from full agonist opioids. So this is one that I think people need to open their eyes to. And people are so afraid of the drug because they've never heard of it or they think it's for only opioid use disorder. But we actually should be using it a lot more in just any opioid use in general because it has much fewer downsides than the drugs everybody else is prescribing, including hydrocodone, oxycodone, methadone. What, um, now how do you, there's so many, there's different formulations of it, right? There's, is it, so do you give with naloxone? So like, I mean, do you give suboxone or do you give just buprenorphine? Do you give 
transdermal? Like, how do you, how do you give it? What's, what's your preferred method? And is there that, I mean, cause the benefit with the naloxone from my, from my understanding is that you can't overdose on the medication if there's naloxone in it, right? Essentially. Yeah. So naloxone's basically the antagonist. So if you were to basically inject this, you melt the film and inject it or melt the tablet or whatever, you can't, it'll block the effect. Buprenorphine can't be swallowed because it's, it's basically destroyed by, by the GI system. So it has to come in through an exogenous route through the mucosal layer or through the skin transdermally. So in an ideal world, again, again, we're working with insurance and drug companies, so the form I would use, if I could choose any, would be the buckle form, because the buckle form is a lower strength. Uh, the brand name is Belbuca, but it's, again, it's hard to get it covered by insurance. So I, I do have some patients on it, but it's a much lower dose. Uh, the Butrans patch, which is transdermal buprenorphine, is also another low strength. So those would be the two I would use. The reason I like the buckle form better is because there could be somewhat of a tapering during the day where where the, the transdermal patch, you should be getting a steady state, maybe 24-7. Restless leg syndrome is a circadian rhythm. It follows a circadian rhythm. So you want a higher dose at night than you necessarily need at 10 a.m. in the morning. You probably want less of that. So if there are any side effects, those may wane a little bit. I know you reach a steady state, but maybe you, you get more of a boost when you take the buckle film at night. With, with regard to what I actually prescribe, it's Suboxone, the, the buprenorphine naloxone, because that's the most cost-effective. And it's actually a fairly affordable out-of-pocket. Some pharmacies, it's $30 for 30 films of two milligram buprenorphine. The problem is it's much stronger than these other two I've just mentioned. So I actually start some patients on an eighth of a film of the lowest dose. So so for opioid use disorder, you're using like maybe eight milligrams or something. And now we're using a quarter or an eighth of a two milligram. And that's where I use the film the most because the film can literally be cut into these tiny particles, whether it's approved or not by the drug company, who knows, but it's worked, uh, I, you know, extensive experience from anyone that you can cut these things in half. You can get these little, um, I don't know, uh, embroidery scissors or whatever, <laughs> these <laughs> tiny crazy. scissors. And I had one woman cutting them into one sixteenths. And because wow. the one eighth was too strong for her. So she was cutting them into one sixteenth and taking one sixteenth per day. And it, it was just right. How big are these patches? I haven't obviously seen. Well, them. if you think of the old like Listerine strips that you put oh, in yeah? your tongue, yeah. they're like a quarter of that size. I mean, these wow, are, tiny. are tiny. I've yeah. never seen it. I mean, people have shown it to me over the camera, but <laughs> I've never seen it, but they're, they're small. So it's, it's a little bit. Picking them up with tweezers at that point. Sometimes they stick together like, and yeah. like, oh, I actually took, you know, one quarter instead of one eighth because they stuck together and I put them both under my tongue. But yeah. It's a little bit impractical, but hey, if you can afford that and you can't afford the buckle film because it's 10 times more expensive, you kind of have to go with the insurance, unfortunately. So again, if you're out of VA, that that could be whatever's on formulary. There you go with, so maybe it's a tablet. Um, so there's multiple different types. There's even buprenorphine tablets without naloxone, but uh, typically I'm going with the film most time uh, just because it can be diced up. So the the Bellabuca, the tran, the Butrans, the Sabac, they all have naloxone in it, or just the just the Sabac, just the Suboxone, because those other two are not approved for opioid use disorder. Gotcha. So you want to cut down the you know the abuse potential, uh, whether it's the person themselves or their you know compatriots. So the naloxone makes it impossible to inject. It basically it's a safety mechanism. Gotcha. Uh, for that. Whereas the, the buckle film, it's a lower dose, but you could theoretically, you know, do more harmful things with it. Gotcha. So you probably wouldn't give that. It's not approved for opioid use disorder, I gotcha. believe. So that's where the Suboxone comes in, but the Suboxone could be used 
just like any other pain medication or any other opioid. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just, I started, I, again, most of my, <laughs> most of my restless legs practice comes from talking to you. So I have been, um, I got, so I got my X waiver. As did uh, I. And yeah. I think John and I took the class and I, I mean, we just recently found out that president Biden said we don't need an X waiver anymore. So anyway, well, yeah, that's, but, that's great. And, and originally or currently you can write any, any, provider with a DEA license can write for it, not for opioid use disorder. So meaning for quote RLS slash pain, you know, whatever it makes sense to the pharmacist, you say it is not for opioid use disorder. Therefore the XDEA or any NADEN, NADEAN, which is in the Epic system, you, you have to write that. Otherwise you can't e-prescribe it. So you write not indicated. It is not for opioid use disorder. Then you tell the patients that because everybody's going to ask, do you have a drug problem? Yeah. Right. Are you on heroin? You say, no, I'm taking it for RLS pain. Because once they hear the word pain, then it's not for opioid use disorder. It's for a chronic pain syndrome, which restless legs actually fits criteria for chronic pain syndrome, whether it's painful or not, it's a, you know, it's a dysesthesia that causes distress. And some of, sometimes it is painful, restless legs. So uh, that helps pharmacists understand that it's not for opioid use disorder. So that's what I write in, in my prescriptions, because most of the time I am prescribing Suboxone, particularly to the Medicare population. I, so the, the, so I, I, I like the, the Butrans because I feel like it stays in your system, kind of that steady state. The, the buckle and the sub, you know, at what, what time do you give that? I mean, it seems like, I mean, it dissolves pretty quickly, right? So like, how long does it stay in your, how long does a film last? I mean, and like, is it just once you just give like a little, little bit of film once daily? The onset that's good? is pretty fast. So again, I don't have these databases in front of me, but I want to say the time to peak or, or actually the onset of action might be 20, 30 minutes, particularly if you're going through the mouth, through the blood vessels in the mouth. So some people do take it as needed and, and it does kick in, no pun intended, quite quickly uh, in, in terms of its effect. But typically I'm giving a standard dose every day. Again, it has a long half-life, sort of like methadone. So you reach a steady state possibly in five days. So you, you want to take one dose, start at a low dose, take it for five days and then assess, is it effective enough? Then you increase. So you may, if it's like a middle-aged person, relatively healthy, you might start with a quarter film of say, say Suboxone and then increase to half film after five days. And if they're opioid naive, they're not going to need a, a lot of the drug. Even if they're withdrawing from dopamine agonists, they're not going to need a ton of this drug to get off. It will knock out the, con- the condition will be very effectively treated uh, depending on the dose. If they tolerate the dose, the only times we've gotten into issues again, uh, when when this gets published, I will have an abstract at uh, the APSS uh, 2023. Hopefully, if it gets accepted, the uh, withdrawal rate something in the name of 10, 20 percent due to these side effects like sedation, dizziness, even at these low doses, they might not be able to tolerate it. If they tolerate it, it's going to work. Opioids always work. I mean, I haven't seen anybody where it hasn't worked. It's usually the side effects that are the problem, not the effect. So... That's that's the thing is that this uh, this drug uh, does not go it it does work quickly but you don't really need it you could kind of take it in the evening and it sort of lasts through the night lasts into the next day take it again during its trough in okay. the evening so it depends when the onset of symptoms occur I would shoot for one to two hours before the symptoms come on and depending on how augmented they are they might be earlier in the day so i do have mostly augmented patients who they might take a noon dose and like a 7 p.m dose or 
or afternoon and then bedtime for an, like a double boost in terms of the peak dosing effect. But steady state about five days and then maybe change the dosage after that. But start really low, particularly with the Suboxone, because people don't realize how strong that is relative to those other formulations. It's, it's a very strong drug. What type of side effects have you been seeing on these? Well, it's the usual opioid. So everybody's going to have maybe some degree of constipation. So that's a one to monitor with a dietary intake, a vegetable, plant matter, fiber, and then your stool softeners. So you got to keep them on a bowel regimen. You always should be screening for that. And, and then some people have things like pruritus. Um, they could have uh, some nausea the first few days. That typically gets better. Some dizziness. The dizziness, nausea, nausea, itching, that tends to resolve after a few days. For those who it doesn't, that's where they tend to go off of it because you've already started the lowest dose. They're not acclimating it. I recently got excited because I had a patient. I've had two patients with rashes, and one patient was doing so well on it. We, we tried a, um, you know, let's adapt to the rash, you know, let's roll the dice. And over, I think I started an antihistamine, and then over like a month or two, the rash resolved. He went off the antihistamine, didn't come back and is doing fine you know, a couple months later. So it was kind of a play it through, kind of play it through the injury type approach mm -hmm. to the rash. Rash, not very common. And this wasn't the patch, by the way, this was more of a systemic okay. uh, uh, sensitivity rash. So we fought through that with a couple patients. Um, and then, you know, there are a few things here or there where you don't know if it's due to the drug or not. Theoretically, it could have some effect on testosterone and hormone levels. So that's something to keep an eye out for, like hot flashes, uh, maybe some mood disturbances opioids can cause long term. But again, it's very complicated because you've got somebody who's not sleeping well, usually somebody with maybe on a dopamine agonist where they could have withdrawal effects on their mood from the dopamine system being disrupted. Is it the drug that you're giving them, the buprenorphine? Is it the dopamine agonist withdrawal? Is it just their sleep? Very hard to, to tease that out. But the, the general uh, effects really don't seem to be very serious in terms of nature. If it's not tolerated, it's basically discontinued after, after a week or so. Uh, even at the lowest dose. So I think, I mean, I think what you do is unique. Um, at least, you know, I didn't know anybody that was doing this until I met you when I came and joined faculty at Michigan. And to my knowledge, I mean, <clears throat> at least in this area, you're still, I mean, very specialized in doing this. And I think, well, I think the other thing that John and I really want to talk to you about is kind of like, what are you doing? You know, cause this is your, the majority of your practice is this now. So like, You've kind of branched out. You're not, you're no longer at the university. You have your own practice. So, kind of tell us, like, how, like, what are you doing? How's that working? And a little bit about concierge sleep. Yeah. So, I in uh, April of 2022, I started what's called a direct specialty care practice. So, there's this huge movement now of direct care, mostly in direct primary care or DPC, where the system is being kind of the rules are set by the insurance system. And they're not necessarily to the favor of the patients or the providers, as you can see, burnout rates going through the roof. And this is starting to affect and has affected even academic centers where more patients getting in, more procedures being done, uh, harder for patients to get in, uh, more and more shorter visits. Everybody, even the academic centers are cutting down their visit time to like 20 minute return visits. And I, I know you guys maybe hopefully are protected a little bit at the VA still with 60 minutes for new patients, 30 minutes for return. That's really the minimum it should be. So 
I was trying to fit myself as a round peg into a square hole or vice versa, whatever the shapes are, in that I, I went to multiple academic centers and it was the same thing. Everything's become so business oriented. The business is being adapted to the insurance reimbursement system. And guess what? There's really one to two conditions that are reimbursed in sleep medicine, sleep apnea, and maybe if you're doing a bunch of MSLTs. Everything else is time-consuming, behavioral. Uh, patients are, are struggling, whether it's insomnia, could be your, your nightmare REM, REM sleep behavior disorder that you guys see a lot of, uh, and it's the restless legs patients. They're all not doing well. They're on drugs making them worse. They can't get off the drugs making them worse, and nobody wants to spend the time or has the time to get them off this drug, these drugs, because it requires a lot of work. So I said, well, rather than trying to you know, do things on off hours and trying to get patients in when I can't see them for three to six months. And I just started on an opioid and now I can't see them for three months or five months. I need to create a system where I can actually manage them the way they deserve to be managed. And the only way to do that was to leave the insurance system. So direct specialty care is kind of a membership type model. It's direct. So it's like you're hiring an, a, a plumber or an electrician. You're the electrician for their insomnia, maybe. And you pay the electrician. The electrician fixes the outlets and now you're sleeping well. So uh, that's kind of the idea. And by not going by the insurance rules, you don't care about how you're reimbursed because you're getting a monthly payment. So now the patient wants to text you. They can text you. You don't have to find a billing code for that because they're paying you each month. Right. They can email you every day if they want to, and you can respond because now you have time to respond because you don't have to clog your clinic with 25 patients mm -hmm. and be there for 10 straight hours. So it's, a, it's turning it on its head. So most of the time I'm not seeing patients. I, most of the time I'm responding to messages and mm -hmm. I can respond quickly enough that it doesn't get to crisis mode where you've got 10 patients in your clinic you haven't seen in six months and they're all in crisis because you haven't seen them in six months. Right. You're doing a little bit at a time when they need your help. And that's the direct primary care model. It's longer visits, more frequent availability, and handling things at a more complex level than you could if you're doing a you know, 10, 15-minute visit with 30 patients a day. So this model is growing exponentially. Specialists are starting to get into it. And this would work in sleep medicine. A lot of sleep clinics do well doing sleep studies. But imagine a sleep clinic that didn't do sleep studies. If you just saw restless legs and insomnia and no sleep apnea, how many sleep studies would you be doing? Very few. Maybe if they coincidentally, I mean, half my patients have sleep apnea too. So, right. but uh, coincidentally, the, so this system actually would lend itself to patients who need this extra time. So it's more of a, a, a quality of care, more intensive treatment. My average uh, new patient consultation is 90 minutes. There are no clinics that are going to offer a 90-minute consultation. Maybe no. maybe the uh, Alzheimer's clinic might might still do that at, at, at an academic center. Even there, it's getting cut down in time because it's more patients you see, the more revenue you get. So this system is what I've set up. It's it's working so far. A lot of my patients are restless legs because that's what I'm, you know, I've done my work in over the years. But today I just got done with a CBTI session. At three o'clock, because guess what? Physicians can do CBTI. If you could see the patient every week, mm. you might be able to do CBA, CBTI too. You can't do it if you can only mm. see them once every right. three months. So I think a lot of physicians would love to do CBTI if they had a schedule for it. But if you're, if you're billing for per monthly fee, then the patient, it doesn't matter. You don't have to necessarily bill the insurance for whatever you're doing because whatever you're doing is working for the patient. They don't care. They're paying a monthly fee to get that help. 
and the outcomes are, are much better than what I could have gotten uh, in the pr previous system. So I, I basically, to practice the way I am now, I had to leave the system. Mm -hmm. And I found a system that works for this, which is a little bit outside the normal system. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the amount of time you're saving, though, with you're not having to do documentation for no reason or billing, billing out billing sheets for no reason, it's just a subscription. You pay every month and simplifies it, doesn't it? Yeah. So, for example, I've had some patients schedule a visit every two weeks, just on a you know on a regular schedule. Mm -hmm. I've had some patients establish care with me uh, through video. This is a telemedicine clinic, by the way. So I establish care through video. They have not seen me through video in nine months, but they text me every week. Mm -hmm. Little question here, little question there. I, oh, I decreased this dose here. Had this experience, and then I give them a you know two line message back or some send portal messages every couple of weeks. So that's the care they're getting. That wouldn't work in the current system. You don't have time to send portal messages. Uh, you don't have time to send text. Text messages aren't even allowed. Right. Um, and or phone calls. Phone call is going to get ten percent of the reimbursement of the video visit. So how could you do a phone call? Well, I just spent an hour on the phone with a patient today. She doesn't care if it's not covered by insurance, or right. or I don't care if it's not reimbursed by insurance. She's paying a monthly membership fee. So she wants to talk to me over the phone. She's, you know, off site, can't get in front of a video, can't come to my clinic. I don't have a clinic, so you can't see me anyway, but, <laughs> but it's telemedicine. Um, so she wanted to talk to me over the phone. I talked to her for an hour, just out of nowhere. I, I created space in my day for that. So, so it's more of a patient centered uh, system. And you'll say, well, that, you know, that's crazy. You're going to spend way too much time They're, They have unlimited access to you. And yeah, they do. But then once patients get better, they have better things to do than, you know, call you once a week. Yeah, yeah. They're only calling you because they're not doing well mm -hmm. and they need help. Mm -hmm. So once you get them help, they don't need to call you anymore. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's kind of the beauty of it. And the patients who aren't doing well still contact the physicians in regular settings every week too. Right. Mm -hmm. There's just not the time to help them get better, right? Because you don't have the, you have the time to do it. You know, we, we get messages from patients on a weekly basis too. They're screened by a nurse. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's, you know, um, but it's complex for patients to navigate and they can choose to talk to you how they want to text phone, yeah. you know, I think they, it's unlimited. Really, I think it's whatever great. they're comfortable yeah. I mean, do with. you, do you keep hours where like after this time I'm not going to respond? Well, um, I have, uh, I don't work full time. So because I, I have complete autonomy over my schedule, I designate certain clinic days. So I have three clinic days. So I try to handle all non-urgent matters on my three clinic days. But if there's something urgent, like they're out of their medication, the pharmacy didn't have it, you know, it could be Monday at seven, I'll send a prescription okay. in for them. They can reach me. They can leave a voicemail on my, my clinic phone and I'll, I'll see it right away and get them that prescription. They don't go without their medication that night. So I can handle these urgent matters. If I'm available at different times, I, you know, I might send them a message on Saturday, mm -hmm. but I, I do, uh, have more control over over that, but there it turns out they have a somewhat unlimited access because they could directly contact you. They don't need to though, because they know on if they it's Monday evening you're going to respond on Tuesday if you're in clinic on Tuesday you'll get back to them. You're not waiting. Oh, MA gets to it in two days. MA gets to the physician. Physician gets back to the MA saying schedule an appointment. Oh, right. I'm booked out six weeks. Yeah, next available six weeks. That doesn't happen in the system. I address the situation when the situation occurs, usually the next business day. And the situation doesn't occur that often because mm -hmm. we can be proactive. Mm -hmm. It's not getting, oh, I 
this was pent up for three weeks. Yeah. It's escalated. And now I finally got in over the phone to talk to you, to your clinic nurse. Mm-hmm. It's, I addressed it when it was happening and it really cuts down on, on that amount. So you actually get a little bit less because they tend to be doing better. So this is a kind of a system that other sleep physicians could do. It's just kind of risky because you're going outside the system. So you lost a referral base, you've lost a salary. So there's some business aspects to it. There's some niche aspects where you have to be offering something that it's worth it. If you're not doing anything different than a typical sleep clinic, why would they pay you when the insurance is going to cover that? So there are, there are questions as to what you, you can do. But for these non-sleep apnea conditions, uh, especially the behavioral ones like insomnia, restless legs, even hypersomnia, which is a, mostly behavioral in, in a lot of aspects, uh, circadian rhythm, uh, parasomnias, these things can be managed well in a different system. And people could could create this kind of environment for themselves if, 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 with their preference. So it's a very exciting area. It's booming in primary care because that's where yeah. primary care is getting hit so hard now uh, in terms of just getting people in and out and getting referrals in there that this direct primary care system is just fantastic for people, low monthly fee, and you get these hour long visits and you can contact them you know, at will. Mm-hmm. And they have lower patient panels because of the memberships and they don't have to deal with insurance as much. So I still deal with insurance, but not not for billing. Right. I, I deal with medications and procedures, but um, for billing, it cuts down on a lot of the kind of the middlemen stuff, the time lost with doing things for billing. When I could just kind of focus on the direct care, and I do write detailed notes, so it's not you know just so I can write nothing in my <laughs> and save time there. I do write detailed notes because I want the doctor and the patient to understand the rationale for what I'm doing. But it's funny because the headache isn't taking care of people. It's the it's the method, you know, it's the overhead and all the stuff that they've created and to to blocks, you know, what we're doing. You know, it's not the patient. It's right. all that extra crap we do that we spend hours and hours documenting and uh, you know, putting in return to clinic orders and all this stuff that, you know, just makes it a big headache. Yeah. So this system kind of cuts that out and and basically uh, right now it's a micro practice. I don't have a medical assistant. So if you call me, I'm responding to your You're phone ske- call. You do the scheduling too? I do everything. Yeah. Um, so if I, show. at some day I might get big enough that I might need some help, but I also control the size of the clinic, how many patients are in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm about nine months in, but this is a, this is exciting for me. I've, I've been able to help so many patients who I can imagine them being in just a typical insurance-based kind of academic center. They would have sunk my clinic, you know, if I weren't able to attend to them like I can now. Mm-hmm. And they've done extremely well, and they're very pleased with it. Um, in terms of my members, I have not had a member leave the clinic yet unless they were doing so well that they don't need me anymore. Mm-hmm. So the people who have left the membership, I do one-time consultations mm-hmm. as well. So some people just need a one-time consultation, but the members who pay a monthly fee, I, the only people who have left are ones who are so happy with how they're doing. They don't think they need me anymore. So the the system does work and then people can do this. I'm again, I'm, you know, Dr. John Winkleman at, at Mass General, uh, he published a paper on just following the guidelines, you know, sort of like these 2021 guidelines. And he published like 73% of augmented patients just following the guidelines got better in this study over five years at Mass General. So it's not, you don't have to do voodoo. I, maybe buprenorphine is a newer drug to some people. That's really the only big step I'm taking. I'm just calling it like I see it. And that's that's where the benefit is coming for these restless legs patients. 
That's great. I mean, it, you seem happy. So, I mean, yeah. you seem pleased with what you're doing. So you can definitely, that comes through. So definitely happy for you uh, that you found kind of a way to practice medicine in the way that you want to do it. Yeah. And it helps uh, to be the telemedicine. I, yeah. I, I know you guys have probably seen a lot more telemedicine since the pandemic, but that is allowed. And I think ho- hopefully states open up more, mm-hmm. but I have a regional practice. I, I don't have more than two or three patients within 10 miles of each other. Mm-hmm. So even if I did set up a clinic somewhere, nobody would want to go because right. everybody's going to be driving or flying. And so I, I have a regional group of patients. That's just my area. Now, not everyone would need to do that if they're setting up. Some people could have a local clinic, but just because it's it's pulling in from a region of people where there's a void in, in tertiary or quaternary care in some of these conditions, I'm able to provide fill that gap for them through telemedicine. Well, I think it's time to, to wrap it up for the day. I know we definitely, um, when you do publish the new ASM guidelines, which what are 10 years old now? So they're, how how old? They might be 11 now, but we, we we're, I think my sense is we'll have it by the turn of maybe by the end of 2023, if we're lucky, Okay, but you'll, you'll see it out there for public comment, which I will recommend. Hopefully we'll have it by this summer, but you know, these things are always delayed, yeah. you know, maybe it's next summer. <laughs> Hopefully summer of 2023, we'll have it up for public comment for the general population to comment on. Yeah. So we'll definitely have to have you back on, uh, to go over those, those updated ASM guidelines for the management of restless leg. But, uh, thank you for joining us. It was great having you and, and, you know, we were able to, I think, cover a lot in a short amount of time. So I think this was an important discussion and I hope people, uh, hope our listeners, will we'll gain some knowledge that will help uh, you know better inform their practice uh, and lead to better patient outcomes. So uh, that's us signing off for the day. Thank uh, you. Take it's care. My pleasure. Thank you. And for the music. Yeah. <laughs>